The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. We have as the psalm book, the Psalter. So they're, they're here gathered together, these private prayers, because they're not meant to remain just private prayers. They're for all of us, for the whole of the church. We are all to read them and to make them our own, to make their cries our cries, their requests our requests, to remember the things that they touch on and point to. It's there for us, as well as private, personal thing, originally, for the author. That's why we're going to preach through some of this book. These poetic prayers are inspired and they are preserved to teach us. We're not just observing someone else. They are there to teach us, to teach us what to long for, to teach us what we should want, what we should desire, how we should pray, where to take our various sorrows. You will be able to identify with the psalmist somewhere, for sure. You've got the whole gamut of life here in the psalm book. And it's here to teach you how to respond. They're to teach us about our God, and in particular, the mighty hope that he is for his people in life. So my hope over the next couple of months is that you would see God in the Psalms and would learn to, in a different new way, see him in your own life and in your own world. You would encounter him. Towards that end, we're going to address one particular portion of the psalm book, book one. You may not realize, but the whole psalm book is divided into five books, taking its cue from the five books of the Law of Moses. We have the five books of the Psalter. Book one begins with Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, which are introductory psalms for the whole of the Psalter, and then it stretches up through Psalm 41. We're not going to preach all 41 of those psalms. We're just going to take out some selected ones. That's where we're going. We're going to look at book one, and that's why we're going to do it, because it's it's a book here to teach us about God, about how to pray, about how to live life. And it does it in a very unique way, through a poetic reaching in, grabbing at your heart. This is different than just straight prose, where there's information recited. It's poetry. It's engaging. I hope it engages you. I love the Psalms. So I'm going to move on now to Psalm 1. If you want to ask me any more questions about the big picture, feel free to do that afterwards. But we're going to look at Psalm 1 today. But before we do that, let me pray. Gracious God, in a lot of ways, Lord, I come to you now tired, physically tired, spiritually not quite at rest and I pray that you would minister to me now at this time you would use your word to bring life to me and to to my heart and I also pray for my brothers and sisters here who may be in various degrees of fatigue physical or spiritual whose minds are are wandering to a hundred other things that are going on now God use this text to minister to them as well Bring life to their souls. 
Lord, we need you to come and in grace meet us now. We open up the Bible in that hope that you would teach us and show yourself to us. And so, God, please do that now. Would Christ be honored in what is said here and in what is done here and afterwards? We thank you, Lord. Amen. If you've been at my house recently, perhaps yesterday or the day before, with some of the crew that was building a fence in my yard, and if you looked at the lawn, you'd notice something. The lawn is dying. The brown and the yellow is becoming more and more visible all the time. It's dying because I don't water it. That's why. Actually, I do water it, but a number of the sprinkler heads are broken or they don't work very well. And it's really just a big hassle for me to, and, and expense to fix all those things, to get them to work just right, to cover all of the grass. And I probably should water a little more than 20 minutes a day every other week, every other day, <laughs> every other week, yeah, a lot more than that. <laughs> but it seems so expensive. I mean, the water bill comes, and man, is it costly to do that. It just does not seem like it's worth it to me. Right now, I'm kind of just content to keep it green enough so that it doesn't catch fire. That's my goal. <laughs> That's hard. <laughs> you know, of course, if we lived in a different environment, things would just stay green naturally. No expense, no labor. would even think about it. We were in Seattle this last weekend. That's kind of how it is there. Different environment, wouldn't have to worry about keeping the grass alive. But that's not where we live. We live here in Utah. And here in Utah, I have found that you just have to water. If you don't, the grass will not thrive. That's the reality of lawn care here in Utah. And it is the reality of soul care here in this world. If you do not adequately water your soul with the Word of God, it will not thrive. That's Psalm 1. our text for this morning. A convicting passage for me this week because to be honest, I have struggled the last week or week and a half to adequately water my soul. But I have found that if I don't, I shrivel up, I wither a little bit. I must, and you must, we all must. We must water our souls, brothers and sisters, We cannot hope to thrive otherwise. There is no other way for us to thrive, to really live. And Psalm 1 presses that upon us in memorable imagery. This passage this morning presents to us two types of lives, and in the middle, the dividing line that differentiates one from the other. So there are three main points that we're going to look at this morning. And combined, these three points all teach us this simple fact that the Lord's instruction leads to blessing. The Lord's instruction leads to blessing, and so we must meditate upon it constantly. We must. We must water our souls with it. Bathe our minds in it. We must get it in there and roll it around inside of us. It's the only way to live the abundant life. thriving, flourishing life that God holds out to us. It must happen. Let me read the passage. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man 
who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Someone. The first of the two types of lives presented here is in verses 1 to 3 and especially emphasized in verse 3. Here it is summarized. The life of blessedness is available. It's a very simple point. The life of blessedness is available. Verse 1, blessed is the man or woman. Blessed, that is, happy, glad in heart. The psalmist starts right where we all want to end up. Every single one of us wants to be able to say of our lives, what a blessed life I have. What a happy, glad heart I have as I walk through this life. We all want to be there. We all seek the life of blessing in which we find rest and contentment of our souls where we're filled with solid peace and joy. Life lived as the object of blessing characterized by an internal heart attitude of happiness. Everybody wants that. Life that is alive, that flourishes just like a strong and thriving tree. In a semi-arid land like Israel or like Utah, for instance, you can't just plant a tree anywhere and expect it to do well. It doesn't happen. It needs water. If it doesn't have water, it will die. But if it has plentiful water, it will never perish. And if you plant it by, for instance, streams of water that are flowing down out of the mountains, it will always have what it needs and it will flourish. It will grow up strong and true. It will produce the right fruit at the right time of the year. It will never suffer from drought. It will never wither. It will never shrink up and shrivel and die. You know, blessed is the tree planted by such a stream, drinking up its life-giving water. This is poetry. It's trying to grab you like poetry does. You know, poetry is one of those things you could always say it more simply. But poetry is trying to say it in a way that will grab you, that will present an image for you. So do you see that with your mind's eye? Think of yourself as perhaps like a 19th century American pioneer traveling out here towards the west. And you come across Kansas that seems to take forever. Traveling through, it still takes forever. Traveling through the, just the vastness of nothing, but maybe weeds and, and dried up grasses from the summer. Summer heats come down and those grasses are all turning brown and you're running out of water and you're parched. And then off in the distance, you see this line of trees. Small at first, but they're growing larger as you approach them. And you for sure approach them because one thing is clear, where there are that many trees thriving, there is water. Trees don't grow like that without water. 
Maybe it's a stream or a pond or maybe a river. Maybe the water's all underground coming from a spring somewhere. But generally speaking, thriving, living, growing trees do not exist apart from water. They're planted by the stream and it draws up the water through the trunk, into the branches, into the leaves. They don't wither. It's a sea of brown everywhere you look except right here where it's green and it's vibrant and it's alive. And everything that comes to it finds shade under those lush branches. Can you see that all around you? Nothing but crunching grass. And here a living tree, a living cluster of trees. You can be like that. That life is available to you. How blessed and happy you would be to flourish like that when everything else around you goes brown. You can have that kind of prosperity, success in whatever you set your hand to, wherever you place your foot. Last phrase of verse 3, in all that he does, he prospers, or literally, he will be prospered. Just like the water prospers the tree, something else is going to prosper you, not you yourself. We'll come back to that in just a minute. But you can be like that right now. But what exactly is he talking about with prosperity there? Let's, talk, let's stop on that word for just a moment. It's held out for you, but what does it mean? In describing such a fertile, thriving tree in this full image of vitality, is the psalmist meaning for us to think about things here on this earth, in this world, that we would prosper? Is he talking about physical health and physical wealth and that kind of prosperity here and now? Yes and no, both. Initially, we have to say yes. We must acknowledge that there is a clear connection to the physical realm here. These verses are very similar to other verses in the Bible, like Joshua 1.8, for instance, very similar. Where the Lord says to Joshua, he connects the coming of the people into the land and their ability to live there and to prosper, to be able to eat with plenty and not be invaded by foreign armies. He connects their physical prosperity to their heeding, not just hearing, but heeding the word of the Lord. It's a very similar passage. There is this kind of connection. The ability to enter the land was going to be connected to how they heeded the law of Moses. That is the law of the Lord given to Moses. And the converse is also true. If you don't heed that law, trouble's going to come. One way or another, either as the discipline of the Lord or perhaps just because the natural workings of God's world bring it to you. The pattern is clear and we must acknowledge it. This is God's world. And he has made it to work in certain ways. And you can only try to, to live against that hard wiring for so long before things start to fail. Let me take a very easy, a very simple example here. Think of honesty. God commands and requires honesty. And if you're dishonest for very long with very many people, what do you think is going to happen? People are going to notice that and they're not going to trust you. They're not going to want to be around you. They're not going to bond to you. They're not going to entrust their lives to you. And what you're going to find is that you're distanced from a lot of people. You're going to find a very unprosperous life of relationships, even in business. It's a very simple example. We could spend a lot of time thinking about that one or finding other ways in which we would realize that God is not mocked. 
We do, in fact, reap what we sow here in this life very often. It's true. He is talking a little bit about prosperity in this world, but that is not all that he has in mind. We know this logically if we think about it, because it would be a a very unprosperous life to flourish here and to die in the next life. Because this is the Bible, he must be thinking beyond just the here and now. We see some evidence of that in the text, actually. We're going to come to verses 4, 5, and 6 in a little bit when we move down to the next life. But one thing we can notice right now, if you just glance down at them, the emphasis in 4, 5, and 6 is on the judgment and on perishing. So what has he done? He has contrasted prospering with eternal perishing. He has a spiritual realm in mind. He cannot mean only the physical realm because those things don't actually match up. You can prosper in the physical realm and perish in the spiritual realm. But he sets them as opposites. He must have a spiritual idea going on here as well. To prosper spiritually. The opposite of perishing. Blessedness is not confined to just the physical to just tangible things. It may well include them. It may not. The center of a prosperous life is a thriving, living, flourishing, vibrant relationship with God. Habakkuk teaches us that, doesn't he? Habakkuk, at the end of the book, if you recall this a couple weeks ago, he's looking out at a life of devastation in which there is no physical prosperity, and yet he is thriving. He's found real life by faith, connected to the Lord. He, amidst great poverty, is prospered. Amidst great violence and danger, is prospered. Amidst persecution and death, even, is prospered. He found that prosperous, vibrant, blessed life. And the same thing is available to you. The psalmist is telling you that right now. You can be prospered in everything, everywhere. The blessed life. It's the first point here, the first type of life. It's available. But where does it come from? How do you get it? It's the second main point. What causes this blessed life, this prospering, that's the dividing line between the two lives? The key to blessedness. Here it is. Blessedness results from internalizing the Lord's instruction. Blessedness results, it's available, it comes from internalizing the Lord's instruction. Verses 1 and 2 make this clear, both negatively and positively. Negatively first, blessed is the man who does not And three things. Notice the progression in them. The person who experiences the life of blessedness does not, is not the one who has given himself to walking in the counsel of the wicked, to standing in the way of sinners, and to sitting down in the seat of the scoffer. He's avoided those three things. The imagery here is of a person who sets out in life to find wisdom. Could be all of us, in fact. All of us looking to find, how should I live? What should I value? What should I center my life on? And he set out on a journey, so to speak. 
and he comes upon the wicked. And the wicked man begins to give him counsel. And so he listens as he's walking in the way, and they're, they're walking down the road talking. And eventually he finds that they kind of they stop. And now they're dialoguing about it. He's no longer progressing. He's settled here giving this a hearing. And they're back and forth, back and forth about it. And then he actually goes and joins him and he sits down with him. He's become one of the scoffers. There's this progression here, which the life of blessedness avoids. He thinks, he listens, and then he joins into something that is actually set against the Lord, that ridicules the way of the Lord, that scoffs. Now maybe this person who follows this path and this counsel, maybe he rejects everything about the way of the righteous. Maybe not. In the psalmist's day, there were plenty of people who, who were Jews, who thought they were worshiping Yahweh, and were also worshiping Baal, one of the false gods of the area. And there are plenty of people today who call themselves Christians, but live and believe and defend and, and even propagate Many things that are entirely false and ungodly. So this person may clearly show his colors by rejecting everything about the righteous, or, or maybe not. There might be kind of a melding of things, a mixing together, but that is not the way of blessedness. Blessed is the man who avoids all of that. It may seem like prosperity, it may seem like a liberating of soul. Now I can really live and experience life. But in the end, verses 4, 5, and 6 are coming. That path, that counsel, that way only leads to death. It's not the way of blessedness. Rather, verse 2, blessedness results from internalizing the Lord's instruction. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on this law he meditates day and night, always positively he drinks it in this is what he does he internalizes God's law the law of the Lord let's think about that for just a second because we're probably a little more accustomed to thinking of the law as a negative thing what does he mean here because obviously it's positive in his mind well the word law you might have a footnote in your Bible that would indicate a common way to translate that is actually instruction it's teaching. It's the teaching or instruction or guidance of the Lord. Now, because it comes from the Lord, it's not a suggestion. It is, in fact, a law. He doesn't say you may or may not go this way if you so choose. He guides us. He instructs, and it's a law. But it's a good thing to have the instruction of an all-wise, all-loving God. He gives that to us. He presents it to us. Now, initially, the psalmist here, remember how I said these are, psalms were all collected well, the, the person who finally wrote it down in this particular order has deliberately placed Psalm 1 at the very beginning. And for him, undoubtedly, at that time, the law, the instruction of the Lord, was given through the mouth of Moses. That's why we've got the five books, paralleling the five books. I mentioned that. So he initially surely meant the instruction of God given through Moses. But now we have a whole bunch more instruction given from God. We have a whole lot more of the Lord's guidance his word to us. Here in the Psalms themselves, but on beyond that, the prophets into the New Testament. It's all rich guidance for us. But notice in particular that this is at the beginning of the Psalms. Because he wants us to think of the Psalms also as instruction from the Lord. 
and is helpful in this process of meditating on it. The effect is, if you were a Jewish worshiper, you'd have your book of the Psalms, after they were written, of course, and you would open up this book, and the very first word you come to is blessed. That's the first word. It's as if he says to you, reader, do you want blessedness? It's available to you. It's right here. Here's what you do. You avoid the counsel of the wicked and you internalize the word of God. And this whole book will help you do that. Read on. That's how he's presenting it to you. And then the poetry flows after that. In a very engaging way. It's right here. This will help you meditate on God's instruction. It is God's instruction to you. Teaching you and pointing you down the path of blessedness. Take him up on the offer. Meditate on it. Don't glance at the word of God. Don't just read it on the fly. Don't just study it like a textbook, cramming the facts in. Meditate on it, he says. Muse over it. Get it in there and roll it around. Play with it in your mind. You know, your vegetable garden out back might have the most fertile soil in the whole valley. And you might have purchased first quality, top-line seed. And you might water it all the time. But if that ground has been compacted and as hard as rock, that seed down there, six inches or however deep it is, is going to have a really hard time sending up those tender shoots through that rock-hard soil. You're going to have very little crop. You need to turn it over and work with it. Just cramming the Word of God in or just sitting here and listening to it and not actually meditating on it, never spending time turning it over inside of you, will produce very little crop. Blessed is the man who meditates day and night. Always. When he rises up and when he lies down and when he goes out and when he comes in, when he's alone and when he's with other people, the man or the woman who holds the instruction of the Lord right here in front of his eyes. You see, the Jewish people have taken this very literally and they write the law in little boxes and attach them to their foreheads and attach them to their arms. We're not supposed to do that literally. Figuratively, do it. Hold it right there in front of you so that you can see it all the time and you're meditating on it as you go through the day. There are a hundred ways to do this. The point is, do it. Get it in there and roll it around. The Lord's instruction leads to this blessed life. Not just because the scriptures are a how-to manual. Many people think of the Bible only in those terms. Here are three ways that I can run my life well. No. Don't think of it only like that. Yes, the Bible teaches. The scriptures teach life wisdom, to be sure. But far more than that, the scriptures teach God. They're presenting to us someone. They're presenting to us a person. God. Not just facts and rules. He's instructing us in a way, in a way that is His way, that's covered with Him and that leads to Him. One of my favorite Psalms, a couple of verses in Psalm 43. Listen to this. See this connection. Psalm 43, verses 3 and 4. The psalmist, again, praying to God, says, God, Lord, send out your light and your truth. 
That's his instruction. That's his law, his word. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. The Lord's instruction is going to lead him. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling where God is. And then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. See the progression there? Lord, please give me your light and your truth so that I can find my exceeding joy, so I can find you. Not just so that I can know how to run my life. I love those verses. Think about that. God's instruction leads you to Him. That's why God's instruction leads you to the blessed life. He is the blessed life. I love that passage. Meditate on that. 43, 3, and 4, if you want to write that down. Internalizing the scriptures will connect you to the Lord, but it takes time. Ruminating on it, contemplating it. You know, no gourmet meal ever results, ever results, from taking something out of your freezer, putting it in the little white box on your calendar, and hitting high for four minutes. Never happens. You can get food that way, but not a gourmet meal. And you will never get a gourmet spiritual meal by glancing at my daily bread while you're waiting for the light to turn green. It will never happen. It takes time. We could talk more about how this renewing happens, what it looks like. But there is something bigger that we need to consider, a problem. The life of blessedness is available, that's the first point. It results from internalizing the word of the Lord, that's the second point. I think that's really clear in the text. Probably most of us already intellectually agreed with that. So why don't we do it? How do we manage to watch so much TV, play so much golf, spend so much time talking on the phone, so much time at our workplace, and not spend time meditating on the Bible? How do we do that? Why do we rise up early to work and burn the midnight oil only to find ourselves just eating the bread of anxious toil? Why are we content to agree with the scriptures but never spend time pondering them for change? I'm talking to you, but I'm also talking to me. As I said, that's been a lot of my week, last week and a half or so. Why do I do that? Why do you do that? Why don't we sufficiently water our souls? Well, let that word delight sift you for a minute. It's right, found right there in verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight is in the law of the Lord. I ask myself, I ask you, what do you delight in? How do you find out what you delight in? Well, observe yourself. And one way to find out is to figure out what you spend your time on. What you give yourself to. What you put your money into. What you put your mental energy into. What you give your physical energy to. What you talk about. What do you do the most? Observe yourself. 
Now be careful because it's pretty easy to say things like, but I hate spending that much time at work. Let me talk to you for a second. Do you really? Because at some level you prefer spending that much time at that job to spending half as much time at some other job. Maybe pays less or involves more difficulty. And you probably prefer that to no job at all. And that's fine. I'm not saying it's bad to prefer that job. We are supposed to have all kinds of delights and loves. We're supposed to enjoy our work. We're supposed to even commanded to love our wives and our children. That's normal. That's okay. The problem is not having delights. The problem is having delights out of order. Getting things messed up in the relation to other things. And there is one thing, one person, in whom we are supposed to have our supreme delight. That's the issue here. Our problem is that we we don't pursue God in his word because, frankly, we delight in God's world more than in him. We love the gifts more than the giver. I don't spend the time and money to water my lawn because I'd rather spend the time and the money on something else. And if I'm honest, when I look at myself, if I look back at this last week, for instance, very often... I don't spend time adequately watering my soul because I'd rather spend the time and the energy on something else. I'm just being honest with you. Why don't you be honest with you too? Sift yourself. Think about it. But be careful. Because it's easy to go to one of two extremes when you do this. It's easy to give yourself a free pass. You know, the preacher doesn't know my life. I have all this stuff to do. Really? Be careful there because at some point you're making choices. Be honest with yourself. It's easy to give yourself a free pass and, and you know, get out of jail free card on this and say that doesn't apply to me. And on the other hand, it's really easy to feel crushed by this. Have a whole dump truck load of bricks just land on you and all the guilt come in. Oh, my word, I don't spend near enough time with God and His word. I need to spend an hour doing this and memorize all these things. And what am I doing going to work at all? No. It's not true. Meditating on the word of the Lord day and night. The psalmist doesn't think that this guy stays awake all night long, every night. That he does nothing but have a 24-hour quiet time. That's not what we're talking about. There are a lot of ways to do this. I personally think that you're going to have to, if you're going to do this well, you're going to have to spend time with the Bible all alone, reading it and praying through it. But throughout the whole rest of the day, there are a lot of ways to keep the law of the Lord in front of you. I mentioned some of them a couple weeks ago. You know, I think music helps me a lot. Memorizing scripture can help. Listening to things on the radio, not cheesy Christian ease things on the radio, but helpful edifying things on the radio. There are a lot of ways. I'm not going to tell you that there's one particular way. And you should know that there is grace. There's grace to forgive when you mess this up. As you're learning to do it better and better. So don't go to either one of these two extremes of feeling crushed by all this. Or of saying none of it applies. Somewhere in the middle is where you need to land. And and if it would be helpful to have some outside input to... Sometimes it's hard to get a good read on ourselves because we're so biased. If it'd be helpful to get outside input, talk to your spouse, talk to another Christian that you respect. Talk to me if you'd like, or another elder, perhaps. But if I'm honest, 
The vast majority of the times in my life when I start to notice the yellow and the brown in my spiritual lawn, it's because I've made choices. I stayed up too late watching something on television that makes me too tired the next morning to get up and spend adequate time in the Word. That would be like 50% of it right there to start. Evaluate yourself. What do you do when you find that, yeah, I've got an issue here, I have a problem. I don't meditate on this day and night because it's not my biggest delight. What do you do? Well, the next step is, God, change my delights. Help, Lord. I look, what I'm, I look and I see this, what I'm supposed to delight in, but to be honest, I really delight in other things more than I, I've just evaluated myself. I see that that's the case. God, help. Change my delights. I confess it to you as sin that I value something more than you, that I value something more than meeting you in your word because it is sin. But Lord, you forgive and change. So please do that. Come and do a work inside of me. I'm going to open up this Bible and I'm going to look for you there. I'm going to hunt you down if you show yourself. Please do that, Lord. That needs to be our prayer. That's our cry here when we evaluate ourselves and find ourselves coming up short. To be honest, that's very frequently my cry and my prayer. God, work in my heart. Help me to actually see you as God, my exceeding joy. Pray that for yourself, for your spouse, for your kids, for me. The life of blessedness comes one way comes by internalizing the word of the Lord because in it we find him. But we won't do that if it's not our big delight. God, help us and change us. That's our cry. We need to have that happen in us because we need to avoid the second type of life. It's in verses 4, 5, and 6. Second type of life there. Let me summarize it by saying this. Misery results from rejecting the Lord's instruction. Misery, not blessedness, results from turning away from him and from his word. Verse 3 said that the person oriented towards God and his instruction prospers. Verse 4, not so the wicked. There's a sharp contrast here. The wicked, those set against God, are like chaff. That is, it's the, the husk. Chaff is the husk around a kernel of grain. And for a time... In a ripening field, the husk grows right up along with the grain. You can't, you can't look and see any difference. But come harvest, the grain is all cut down. It's taken into the threshing floor, and it's beaten, and it's broken down, and the kernel is separated from the husk. And then it's thrown up in the air, and the heavier kernel falls. But the husk, the chaff, is lighter, and so it hangs there, and the wind blows it away, and it's gone. So it is with the wicked for a time, they seem to grow. They seem to prosper. But in the end, at the harvest, they are blown away as refuse. They cannot stand the judgment. They have no part in the eternal congregation of the righteous. They do not stand, but they fall, they perish. I'm talking about they, them, but I realize that there are some here this morning that that, that may well be you. And understand that as I'm preaching about verses 4, 5, and 6, I'm, I'm mindful that that might be you, and I hope that you would hear this and that you would want to avoid this misery. I'm not trying to throw it in your face in a boastful way, but, but it is true. 
to turn away from and to reject the Lord's instruction leads to misery. Maybe not now for a little while. Perhaps the circumstances of life will protect you here for a bit. But not in the end. Turn from that path and heed the Lord's instructions. At all costs, we must avoid this misery. I know that most of us, most of us wouldn't identify with verses 4, 5, and 6, but it's not quite so simple as to say, oh, well, I'm a Christian, therefore that doesn't apply to me. It's not about me, it's about other people. It's not quite that simple. Notice that the psalmist has done something here. He set this up in presenting two lives, and only two lives. The righteous person is the blessed life who prospers because his delight is in the law of the Lord and he meditates on it day and night. And the other one is the one who doesn't, called the wicked here, who perishes. Think of it like a fork in the road with two paths and there is not a third that says, well, I'm going to be saved, I'll be fine at the judgment, and I'm going to continue on having very little delight in the word of the Lord, not meditating on it at all. That third path does not exist. There are two. So you see a dilemma here. Because right about now, all the people like I just admitted to being who realize I don't delight in the law of the Lord above all things all the time and meditate on it day and night. So it's hard for me to say that that's fully my path and I don't want that path, so where am I in this scenario? Is there any hope for me with my fickle heart? You see what he's doing here? He's forcing you. He's, he's presenting a sharp dichotomy here. Two ways. You don't want this one, and it's hard for you to say, that's fully me. So you're stuck at the crossroads here. What do I do? Is there any hope? Is there any help for me? In Christ there is. Thank God in Christ there is hope. Because there is one who lived this perfectly. Only one. There is one blessed man who never walked in the counsel of the wicked. Who never stood in the way of the sinner and never ever took his seat among the scoffers. The law of the Lord was his supreme delight always. It was food to him and life to him. And he staked his life on the fact that man cannot live on bread alone, but only on every word that comes out of God's mouth. In all that he did, Jesus prospered. He and he alone is the complete, perfect example of verses 1 to 3. He is the type of person that God is seeking to create in us. In Christ, we see these verses perfectly lived. This psalm is pointing to him. Two paths, he alone has tread that one. And it calls us, this is the way you are supposed to go. And then it confronts us, but I don't. And then it turns and it offers us. But he has, he has walked that way and he can give you his righteousness. He can work in you such that you walk that more and more. And he can forgive your unwalking, your non-walking of that path. You have to come to him by faith. Heed that part of the Lord's instruction first.
come to Him by faith and find His substituted life, His righteousness given to you, your sin paid for by Him. Jesus knew no sin. And so He is able to take on the sin of all those who trust Him. And then in Christ we can and will be blessed with every blessing in the spiritual realms. It's where the blessed life is found in Christ who knew the blessed life himself. And then in Christ, we are marked and sealed with the Holy Spirit who comes and does a work inside of us to change our delights, to make us to love what is lovely and to hate what is wrong. The Spirit will work in and will change those who are in Christ. And at the cross we find forgiveness of not walking the path. So Psalm 1, the introduction to the whole of the Psalter, says to us, Delight in the law of the Lord and find blessedness there. Meditate on it continually. And when you don't, Come to the Christ and find forgiveness. And find help as he changes your delights. And with that, it sets up the whole rest of the psalm book. The Lord's instruction leads to blessing. So meditate on it. Meditate on him constantly. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.